We have a, a special baby dedication, actually baby's dedication this morning. And so, uh, okay. no, you guys, you're good, you're good, you're good, go, 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 go. Okay, this is little Aubrey, Aubrey Joe. You say hi, baby. You say hi to everybody. It's Papa. You say hi. It's Papa. And this is a little Finley Grace. And they are the best little kids in the whole wide world. I mean. <laughs> um, I asked Joey just a little bit, just to uh, really just a little quick, just um, thank you and, and update about the girls. And so here's Joey. Just... Hi, everyone. So um, we were in the hospital for 132 days. They were in the NICU, intensive care. They were on ventilators. They were on oscillators. They were on steroids. They were on everything under the sun to keep them alive. And God just kept his hand of protection upon them. He's just been so faithful throughout this whole situation of taking care of these little precious babies. And they're absolute miracles. And we just want to thank you guys, our family. Just We are so grateful to the prayers and just every supportive person here. Just everything you've done for us and just been here supporting us spiritually and prayers. It's just been it's been a lot easier going through this with a church body like this. And then God's just been so faithful throughout this whole situation. We uh it's been ups and there's been downs, but just the presence of the Lord has just been with us this whole time and there's just been such a sense of peace that just surpasses understanding. It's awesome. Awesome, awesome. It's just been cool. And we're just so thankful for you guys and your love for our family and our babies and we're just so grateful to God for the work that he's doing in our life, the work that he's done in little Aubrey's life and Finley's life too. And we're just grateful beyond words to all of you guys. So yeah. Awesome. Okay, let's try this. Okay, we're going to try this. Come here, sweetheart. Okay. It's Papa. We should go to the other side so we can get one on his arm. Okay. Oh my goodness gracious. Okay. Okay, let's try this again. No, Bible says children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. And so I, I just, oh, I'm just so blessed by these guys. Okay, this, Aubrey, this is Aubrey, and uh, you know Aubrey's name actually means ruler of little people, and so um, and Finley means Finley fair-haired warrior, and so um, you ready, babe? Just so you know, they're five months old today. That when they were born, Aubrey was one pound fourteen ounces, and Finley was two pounds one ounce. And now they're both over nine pounds, and so it's just very, very cool. You know, it's it's awesome. In First Samuel chapter one, Hannah wept and prayed for a child, and the Lord gave her answered her prayer, and in 1 Samuel 1.20 says, In the due time she gave birth to a son, she named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. And she dedicated him to the Lord. You know, when it comes to uh, these little girls, Jesus says, For your father knows the things you have need of them before you ask him. And uh, the Lord knew exactly what Joey and Natalie need in their lives, that, you know, uh, three weeks after they were married, they need twins. 
And uh, God exactly knows what, they're, what he's doing. You know, Psalm 127, verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And, uh, Lord, it's truly a blessing that God has given them, these girls, and, and us, these girls, and, uh, you know, the Piper family. We're just, like, blown away by this. And so we're going to dedicate them to the Lord right now, so would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for these little girls. We thank you, Lord, for saving their lives, preserving their lives. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom you gave doctors and nurses and, and the hospital and all the treatments they had, Lord. But it's all you, Lord. So to you, all the glory and honor goes Father, I pray right now for little Aubrey. Lord, that this, as again, her name says she's a little ruler of little people. Lord, would you take her and you would raise her up as a leader. Lord, just as she's using her voice right now, Lord, she would use that voice, Lord, to lead people to you. Lord, that she would become a woman of God, Lord. A woman that would, would just bless you and, and, uh, serve you her whole life, Lord God. So we dedicate little Aubrey to you. And for little Finley, Lord, this fair-haired warrior, Lord, that she too would come to know you at an early age. And as her name implies, Lord, that she would make a difference for the kingdom of God. That this little warrior, Lord, that you would make her a soldier for your kingdom. And you would give her, Lord, both of these girls, just the gift of evangelism and the gift of, of, of bringing glory to your name. Lord, I thank you for uh, Natalie. Lord, and just her love for these girls, her love for you, God, her faithfulness to you, Lord, and uh, Lord, her, her prayers for these girls, Lord, you are such an amazing God. I pray that you give Natalie continued wisdom in, in raising her girls, Lord, for Joseph as well. I just thank you for him and the gift you've given him, Lord, and Lord, help him to be the, the, the father the, the, and Natalie, the mom that you've designed them to be, Lord, that they would raise their children in your ways. And you would be glorified through them. We dedicate them to you now, Lord, recognizing they're just all known from us. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for the work you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So open your Bibles and... uh, No. Your sister was so quiet. But you're the ruler of little people. Okay. (laughs) All right. All the youth go downstairs. And and, and, uh, if you have your Bibles now, let's open them up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24 this morning. We're going to be looking at the verse, first 14 verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us this morning. Matthew chapter 24. The title of my message this morning is Things to Do Before Leaving Earth. Let's read the first 14 verses together. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and the disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? And surely I say to you, Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? 
And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. The many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word, knowing, Lord God, it's your desire to speak to our hearts. So we pray that you just give us open ears to hear all that you have for us today. Help us to have not only understanding, but application in our lives as well. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their life to you. They're not born again today. They're not saved. Lord, would you especially touch their heart this morning that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. So bless our time together, we pray. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew Chapter 24 is really one of the most important chapters on the subject of Bible prophecy that we have in the entire Bible. If you're going to study prophecy, you're going to study the book of Daniel. You're going to study Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And of course, you're going to study the book of Revelation. And I know there's a lot of other verses that deal with prophecy but, but and prophetic events. But these are the three most important standout passages, the very key and important passages. And what we'll find as we take our time through chapters 24, chapter 25, is that God has a lot to say about what's to take place on this planet. Now let me ask you this this morning. If you knew the Lord was coming back tonight, would you change anything in your life? I found a list, this is from a non-Christian website, about things you should do if you thought the world was ending tonight. Number one, end your diet immediately. I like that one. Number two, park wherever you want and however you want. Number three, resolve to hit the gym tomorrow. Number four, throw out that bucket list. It's not going to matter anymore. Number five, make a lot of noise in the library. Number six, touch everything that has to do with the do not touch sign in the museum. Number seven, go to Walmart and ride bicycles around until they kick you out. Number eight, order 4,500 pizzas and give one to every stranger you meet. Hope they're pepperoni. Number nine, open all the cages at the zoo. And number ten, this might be inappropriate in the church, leave the toilet seat up, guys. Might be with me on that one, I don't know. But I didn't say they were funny, I just said that that's what they were, you know, the illustration. But for the sake of illustration, let's just say that you knew when Jesus was coming back. Now, you know that, that no one knows the day or the hour. The Bible says that. And even though there are those that like to predict the, the date and the hour, the, but they don't know. But let's just say, for the sake of this illustration, that we knew that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow at 3 p.m. Now, I'm sure you would all be like saints, you know, at, at 2.45, right? We'd be wearing our Sunday morning smiles on and, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, attitude. Now, we don't know if he's returning tomorrow or not, but we shouldn't. We should still have that same smile and that same attitude and live every day as though Jesus Christ could return. 
In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about his eminent return, the eminent return of Jesus Christ. The Bible has a lot to say about prophecy. Now, there may be some of you here that you're saying, well, Tom, I don't really want to have a study on prophecy. I want to learn to be a better wife or, or a better husband or how to witness or how to share. But you see, all of those things will come out of an understanding of prophecy. Now, before we get into verse 1 of Matthew 24, let me give you a couple of straightforward answers as to why we should study prophecy. Why do we study prophecy? Number one, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. I mean, the Bible's uh, prophecy makes up such a large part of the scriptures. Of the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. 218 chapters, 218 times the coming of Christ is mentioned just in the New Testament alone. That means the second coming of Christ is mentioned one in every 30 verses. So just by mere occurrence in the Bible and its frequency of it and the percentage of time it's mentioned, it's an indication to us that God you know, wants us to know and be familiar with Bible prophecy. He wants us to study it. Why else do we study Bible prophecy? Because it's beneficial. It's beneficial. It's amazing how practical biblical prophecy becomes. And it's beneficial in three ways. Number one, it cleanses us. We're told in 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope that he's referring to there is the second coming of Jesus Christ. I've shared this many times before. I do not want to be doing anything that would displease the Lord when the Lord comes back. I don't want to be watching a movie I shouldn't be watching. I don't want to be arguing with my wife or calling someone an idiot who doesn't know how to drive and suddenly be caught up into the presence of the Lord. Oh, you idiot! <laughs> Lord, let you know. I, I mean, I, I, I was, I, you know. I don't want to do that. I don't want that to happen. Listen, if we really believe that the Lord could return at any moment, then you're not going to want to live a life of sin. You're not going to want to practice sin. You're not going to be wanting to do those things that are questionable. Why? Because you believe the Lord could return at any moment. In fact, Peter says, seeing all these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in godliness and righteousness? So studying Bible prophecy, it's beneficial because it not only cleanses us, but also it comforts us. It comforts us. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 1-3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And that's a classic passage on comfort. And it deals with the Lord coming for His children, coming for His kids. I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back for me. That for some 2,000 years, He's been preparing a place for me. And He promises to come and get me. That's comforting. Number three, the third reason studying Bible prophecy is beneficial is it compels us. It compels us. Jesus said the night comes when no man can work. Jesus knew there would be a time when, when he would be going back up to heaven and he would no longer serve physically here on this earth and labor in the harvest. In the same way, we should be compelled in the light of the Lord's return to witness to our neighbors, to understand that we're not going to have a plethora of time left. We only have a certain amount of time to share with our neighbors and our friends and our family members. And, and, and if the rapture were to happen today, that's it. We're done. No more opportunities. Night comes where no man can work, so we should be compelled in the light of the Lord's return to get the good news out that, that Jesus Christ can save, that Jesus Christ is coming again. 
Now, when it comes to Bible prophecy, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves know. And, I, and I'm very thankful for this church, because I believe that most of you could probably do a, a better job of an end times message than I can. But that's a great thing. This should be normal Christianity. I mean, God help us if we can't discern the times and the seasons that we're living in. So as we look at these things, they are a reminder to us of these things. In fact, that's what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. So many of you know these things, but it's a good reminder for us to go over them one more time. Well, now it's time to dig in. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the when, the what, and the why. Now, Jesus had just lamented in chapter 23 over Jerusalem. Take a look at verse 37 of chapter 23. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. What Jesus meant by that is because of the Jewish rejection of their Messiah, their temple their nation would be destroyed. See, the temple was a part, uh, the central part of the, the life of the nation of Israel. You destroy the temple, you've destroyed the nation. They're both one and the same. So Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem because of their rejection of Him. Now this is also tied into, we've seen over the past few weeks, the cursing of the fig tree. There is no fruit on the fig tree. The fruit of the, uh, the fig was a uh, picture of the nation of Israel. Then all the woes that we looked at last week, the eight woes, all linked to Jesus, uh, to the Jews rejecting Jesus. And so Jesus says, listen, because of this, your house is going to be left to you desolate. Now at this point, when the disciples heard that they were confused, Wondered, how is this? You could be the Messiah. You, you want to set up your kingdom and not have a temple. Not have a place to rule. So they began to, to, to look at the temple that was there. And, and they, they talked to Jesus about it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Then Jesus went on and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So as they're leaving the temple area, the disciples are going, yeah, But Jesus, look. Look at this thing. It's beautiful. I mean, look at this, this golden dome and the golden gates and all the, the glory of the temple. It can't be left desolate. Now, in fact, it was a beautiful structure. Josephus, the historian, said that the stones that Herod used to build the temple were 25 cubits long, 8 cubits high, and 12 cubits thick. One cubit's approximately 18 inches, so that according to Josephus, these stones are about 35 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet thick. Just for a comparison, our, our, this width of the sanctuary is about 33 feet. So I had a couple more feet. That's how wide they were. For a long time, uh, you know, historians thought that Josephus was guilty of exaggeration. Yet, as archaeological work progressed, they found the stones that, the, that formed the retaining wall of the Temple Mount that proved its accuracy. That some of the stones were as, as long as 45 feet long. So here are the disciples. They're commenting on the beauty of the temple that was built by Herod the Great. And no doubt... It's going to blow their minds what Jesus says next. Look at verse 2. Do you not see all these things? As surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, if you remember what Bruce shared last week about the Greek class and the insight in the words, Ume, 
It's actually found here in verse 2 when Jesus says, uh, uh, not one, speaking of the stones being left upon the other, Ume, no way, Jose, certainly not, there is not going to be one stone left upon another. And in 70 AD, less than 40 years after Jesus spoke those words, the Roman soldiers stormed Jerusalem, and although though Titus commanded that they not uh, desecrate or harm the temple, someone threw a torch into it, the fire became so hot that then the gold in all the temple melted down into the cracks and the crevices of the stones that were on there. When it cooled and solidified, Roman soldiers were ordered to pull down every single stone of that temple in order to get to that gold. And they didn't quit until they managed to, to pull down every single stone there. Not one stone was left upon another exactly as Jesus said would happen. That's why all that's left today is the welling wall. A part of the temple's foundation, a massive wall, but actually small compared to what the temple was like. Now to hear these things from Jesus, that this beautiful temple was going to be destroyed, obviously that was a conversation starter. And the first question that many of us would have asked, and, 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 and they asked when they were there, when? When is that going to happen? That's our first point, when? Look at verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now I want you to notice there's not just one question here. There, there's three questions here. Number one, when will these things be? Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And number three, and the end of the age. And Jesus goes on to give the longest answer to any question ever asked. Of all the questions asked Jesus in the Bible, this is the longest reply. covers chapter 24 and 25. This is what's commonly called the Olivet Discourse which is a fancy way of saying the uh, prophetic teaching that took place on the Mount of Olives. But the first question was asking when had to do with the destruction of the temple. They wanted to know when. Now, you know, when, when will not one stone be left upon another? And, and, and really what they really wanted to know is, is more than that. Is how are you going to set up your kingdom, Jesus? When are you going to set up your kingdom? And more importantly, if you look at the other Gospels, what position do we have when you set up your kingdom? That's really what they were looking at. And in fact, Luke's Gospel tells us in chapter 19, verse 11, they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. In their minds, Christ was going to begin His rule right then and there. They hadn't figured on the crucifixion. They hadn't figured on the resurrection or His departure and, of course, His return. I mean, they were on their tiptoes waiting for something to happen for Jesus to establish His kingdom. They had no idea that there was going to be a gap of years at that this time period would last. Even in, in, in Jesus, you know, uh, uh, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus' resurrection, right before he ascended into heaven, what did they say? They said, Lord, is, is now the time is that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I love what Jesus said in Acts 1, verse 7 and 8. It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The when of all this is going to happen, it's not for you to know. Okay, What you need to know is I want you to be a witness to me uh, all over the world. See, there would be a time delay in what Jesus was saying. But what happens now is Jesus goes on to answer really the other two questions. But our second point is what, what will be the sign of your coming? Now there's some confusion here, and and and, uh, and really, and, and we can get some confusion in the order of prophetic events. 
we hear terms like the rapture and the antichrist and the second coming, the, the abomination of desolation and the millennium. And well, what does all that mean? How is all that, that played out? What is, what is the order of these events? Now, we don't certainly have the time here to go to, to each one and, 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 and uh, expound on each one, but I do have a, a quick overview of some of these things, and, and we will cover them quite a bit over the next few weeks in order of prophetic events. But, but the next prophetic event that I see happening, nothing to prevent this, is the rapture of the church. Nothing to prevent the rapture of the church taking place right now. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Now after the rapture of the church, or right before the rapture of the church, it's quite possible the events of Ezekiel chapter 37, 38, 39 could take place. Ezekiel 38, 39 is about a war in which a coalition of, of nations devise an evil plan against Israel. Now, God defeats the enemies of Israel. In fact, God's word says that the defeat will be so extensive, it'll take seven months for the people of Israel to find and bury the remains of their enemies. But it's interesting who's involved in this war. I found a, a chart, I found a, a list from Ezekiel 38, it contains six nations and one leader. You have the, the, the ancient name on the left side and the, the modern name on the right side, but you have the, the, the Gog, which is a Russian leader, Magog, which is Russia, Persia, Iran, Ethiopia, Sudan, Libya is Libya and Algeria, and Gomer and Beth Togomar is Turkey. But that, you know, three of them stand out to me. Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Why did that stand out? Because they are now presently collaborating one with another. Then you have Libya and Algeria. They're already closely aligned with Russia and hostile to Israel. And then Sudan is a radical Islamic Sunni state allied with Iran and Russia that, that is anti-Israel. In fact, Ezekiel 38 predicts that Russia is going to be drawn in as a hook pulled into this, this uh, conflict to come against Israel. But here's a, a, an interesting picture I found of a meeting between Russian President Vladimir Putin, Turkish President Erdogan, and Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. These guys shaking their hands, coming to agreements, discussing these things. In fact, back in August, uh, Turkey announced that it will host a summit with Russia and Iran tomorrow, September 16th. Russia had already warned Israel to stop their interference in Syria just recently and, and vowed to stop them from any offense they make against their enemies. I hear this, I look at the news, I go, man, could this be the start? Is the alliance of Russia, Turkey, and Iran a precursor to the events prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39? Time will reveal the answer. So as I said, you have the rapture of the church, you have the events of Ezekiel 38, 39, either before or right after. After that, you have the, the great emergence of the, of the, or you have the emergence of the great world leader, the Antichrist. Now he's gonna rule, he's gonna reign for about three and a half years. There's going to be this pseudo-peace in the world. And then he'll be involved in what's called the abomination of desolation. And we'll look at that in the coming weeks. And that will signal the second half of the tribulation period. The tribulation period will last for seven years. Uh, two, three and a half year increments. First three and a half years, the Antichrist is, is the great guy. Rules and reigns is a great man of peace. However, his true colors will, will come out midway through at the abomination of desolation. After that point, you, you read of, of plagues and God's judgment that fall upon the earth for that last three and a half years. 
uh, culminating in that last battle, the uh, mankind, the battle of Armageddon. And then as the battle of Armageddon is, is in full swing, Christ himself will return to this earth. He will then establish his kingdom upon this earth for 1,000 years. That's called the millennium. After the millennium is the great white throne judgment. Those that have died in rebellion against God will stand at that great white throne judgment. And then heaven and earth will basically, essentially become one. That's the overview of Matthew chapter 24, 25. But I would also want uh, to tell you, those students of Bible prophecy, you can go back and look this up on your own, but, but the order of events in Matthew chapter 24 actually tie in to Revelation chapter 6. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I'll bring a few of those verses up as we go along. But it's the same chain of events, again, beginning with the emergence of the Antichrist and ending with the return of Jesus Christ. Now, what we're about to read, it's not happened yet. There's signs that it's leaning that way, but it's not happened yet. I'm not saying I don't believe that we're living in the last days. I do believe. But these events are still yet future. What we are experiencing really is this birth pains of these events, and we see that. I mean, uh, you know, we, we see a lot of these things that we just read as we did the overview uh, already happening. But this actual chain of events, when they actually start, it's going to be like dominoes. So one's going to fall, then the next one, and the next one, and it's going to happen rather quickly over this seven-year span. Now, let me say this. I, as a Christian, do not expect to be present for these events that we are about to read about. Again, I may see the foreshadowing of them, but I will not see the actual chain of events because, as I said, uh, this heralds in the beginning of the Great Tribulation period. And it's my firm conviction that we as Christians will not go through that time of what is known as Jacob's trouble, a uh, time of the, the wrath of, of, of Christ coming upon this earth. In fact, the scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. But I want to point out to you the first domino, so to speak, that will fall. Jesus is talking about that leading to these chain of events. There's eight of them, if you're taking notes. Uh, this first one uh, starts uh, in verses 4 and 5 with, number one, religious deception. Look at verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So what we're going to see and do see today is the intensifying of religious deception. You know, many years we've had religious deceptions. Cults like Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses and Christian Science and giving us this distorted and this false view of Jesus Christ. But man, this day and age that we're living in today, it, it's, it's gone to the extreme. We've had an explosion of Eastern mysticism. And it's really caught our, our country, our nation, uh, their imagination. We don't call it what it is. We don't call it the New Age movement. But that's exactly what it is. And we have churches devoted to New Age practices and lifestyles. And that's happening all around us. But the Bible tells us it will be that way in the last days. We're told in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. We're told in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit speaks clearly that in the last days some will depart from the faith, giving heed to doctrines that demons teach, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So we see it happening, but not only that, I mean, we see people today that are openly and aggressively pursuing uh, and exploring the occult. Pursuing these things. Really what they're doing is opening their minds up to just this path of darkness. 
and there's Satanism, and there's, there's voodoo, and there's witchcraft, and just other, these, these hardcore forms of occult that we're seeing, they're just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, if you consider the, 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 the clairvoyants and the mediums and the psychics and the channelers and the gurus and the astrologers, I mean, you'll have a better grasp of, of this really occultic revival that's sweeping our world, sweeping our nation. Then I think about, man, the media. I mean, the, the Satan really controls the media, but the, the movies that are out there. You know, I, I, I'm a, a big Marvel movie fan. I like the Marvel movies. I enjoy them. But man, it is New Age stuff. Star Wars, New Age stuff going on in there. But it looks so, it's Eastern mysticism that they make look so attractive. We see the cults on the rise and false doctrines and false teachers. We see the stage set for just massive spiritual and religious deception. We hear people say, well, there's no really real truth. There's no right or wrong. There's no moral absolute. You just can't say Christianity is the only way, that Jesus is the only way. That's going to intensify. Is what Jesus is saying uh, in the, until you get to the Great Tribulation, and then it just goes over the top. In fact, Revelation 6, verse 1 and 2, let me read it to you. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. People read this and often misinterpret what it's saying. This is speaking of the Antichrist. This is not speaking of Jesus Christ. The horse rider here, the breaking of the first seal, is not Jesus Christ, as many falsely assume. It's a deception. It's a man of sin. It's the son of perdition. When we use the word Antichrist, it means in place of Christ. Not just opposite of, in place of. So this guy's going to come on the scene, you know, as this great, Good moral leader, but it's a great deception fooling people. But understand that the word anti also means an opposition to. He is against Christ and anything he stands for. And he's going to deceive many people. Revelation 13 speaks of him who's doing these great signs and wonders. And all the world marvels at this man who is called the beast. Second sign that we see, not only religious deception, is wars and rumors of wars. Look at verses 6 and 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. So let's follow along in Revelation chapter 6. You have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first horseman represents the Antichrist. The second horseman uh, is red, symbolizing war, taking peace from the earth. This, this world, man, this world has seen so many wars. But the war that's coming is the worst of all. You know, World War I, we saw 10 million people lose their lives. It was thought to be the war of all wars that would ever be. But it only took 20 years for a new and even more terrible war to develop. World War II, 50 million people lost their lives. But again, this doesn't compare to, to, to the scale of war that will be unleashed by Satan during the tribulation period. Many uh, years ago, a French chemist made this statement. It was 1860. He said, Within a hundred years of physical and chemical science, man will know what the atom is. It is my belief that when science reaches this stage, God will come down to earth with his long ring of keys and say, Gentlemen, it's closing time. Fascinating statement made in 1860. Our stockpile of nuclear weapons it's gone down. I mean, in 1986, we had a total of 64,449 nuclear weapons in the world. 
But it's gone down because the destructive power of those weapons have gone way, way up. I mean that today we have far less amount of weapons, but the ones we have are so much more powerful. In 2014, according to our world and data, there are only 10,145 nuclear weapons. But with that, we have the ability to destroy our planet 17 times over. One scientist was asked which weapon would be used in World War III, and this atomic scientist gave an answer I thought was insightful when he said, I'm not sure what will be uh, weapons will be used dead in World War Three, but I'll tell you what ones will be used in World War Four: rocks. Because there'll be nothing left. See, what this is saying is that, that the intensifying of wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, and again, Revelation 6, verse 3 and 4, when it talks about Jesus opening the scrolls, or the seals there, he says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see another horse, fiery red one out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and it was given to him a great sword. Again, the tragedies of World War I, World War II, Vietnam War, Korean War, Iraq War. I mean, we grieve for the loss of life there. But we've seen nothing yet. Jesus goes on to say that it will be a time of trouble that man has never seen before on planet Earth. So the Red Rider comes and takes peace from the earth. This brings us to our third sign, verse 7. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, he says. That's the third side, famines. Now, I'm not sure if nuclear weapons will be used during the Great Tribulation period. It certainly seems to me that it does. It certainly points that way to me. But, but, but here's the thing I know. According to LifeScience.com, if Russia and the United States launched out an all-out nuclear war, it would actually destroy everyone on the earth. Because a new study suggests that even though the explosions and the fires and the radiation would kill millions at the targeted city, the nuclear winter that followed will last for months, even years, and would drastically alter the Earth's uh, climate, causing freezing summers and worldwide famine. Mark Harwell, Associate Director of Cornell University's Ecosystems Research Center, estimated that although 700 million people would die as a result of this nuclear war, the indirect effect potentially could lead to the deaths in the range of 1 to 4 billion people. Listen to what Revelation 6, 5, and 6 talks about when Jesus opens the third seal. It says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So the exotic things like oil and the wine, uh, they'll be for the rich, they'll be able to enjoy it. The rich will get richer, the poor will get poorer. But during the tribulation, a loaf of bread will cost you a day's wage. I don't know about how much you get paid per day, but, but that's a pretty expensive price for a loaf of bread. So the black horse will bring in famine. This brings us to the fourth side in verse 7. Pestilence. Diseases. Now we've, we've had our fair share of diseases in, in our world. 2003, I think it was the, the big one was the, the SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Killed hundreds of thousands uh, and, 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 and people, we uh, killed hundreds of panic thousands rather. Then there was the AIDS epidemic that killed tens of millions. And even today is decimating populations of some countries. We had the, the bird flu. That was a, a big one. And, and t- tomorrow could be something else, even a greater plague to sweep across the landscape. And viruses, viruses that we thought we, you know, had wiped out, we we're seeing reoccurring. 
Even in our modern scientific age, we do not have the ability to deal with some of these diseases and, and, academic, and epidemics. The pestilences. It's going to get worse. The fifth sign, verse 7, earthquakes in various places. Now we hear all the time of earthquakes that continue to happen, like the last Thursday morning. I mean, down in Arkansas, 14 miles from Mountain Home, Arkansas, a 3.7 magnitude earthquake hit. Now, from those of us from California, you know, unless it's a six-point earthquake, we don't wake up. But, you know, for these folks, I mean, it said it was felt all the way to Branson. Now, people think that Jesus predicted there's going to be an increase in earthquakes. But look at what Jesus exactly says here. There will be earthquakes in various places. Article I read from LifeScience.com said that Earth's moving mantle leads to earthquakes in unusual places. And then you tie that into Revelation chapter 6. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like, like blood. So under the sixth seal that this great earthquake. But earthquakes, they are going to intensify. They're going to be in places you wouldn't expect earthquakes to be. So Jesus says when you begin to see the pestilence and the superpowers at war and you begin to see famine and earthquakes in various places, know that the end is near. Notice in verse 8, he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. So this is just the beginning. We haven't really, uh, you know, got to the full-blown uh, things that are, are going to happen. We'll get to that. Now, the word sorrows there in verse 8 could be translated birth pangs. Now, if you're a mom and, and you've had a child, you understand what that word means. They call it contractions. They call it labor pains. And you know when labor starts, generally speaking, oh, no, you know, some women have maybe different kinds of labor, but they start with that light pain. Oh, that doesn't feel so good. I think that hurts a little bit. Then it gets stronger and stronger, and, and it gets more intense, and you're, and you're timing them, and you're doing your, you're breathing, okay, you're breathing, and you're, you're calling your husband, hey, get home, I think it's time to go to the hospital, and you find that the labor pain is getting stronger and stronger, and you gotta go. I mean, it, it's tough, right up to the baby's born. Then it's like, oh, I mean, the, the really bad pain. But then afterwards, oh, praise the Lord, look at this baby, what a blessing. And, and, and you forget all that sorrow. It might take you a few hours, a few days for some, 18 years for others, but, but I, I mean, <laughs> you forget all that sorrow for the joy that child has come into the world. And before that child was born, you might have said, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this. I quit. I'm not going to have this baby. We should never start this whole process. Take me home. You're freaking, and you're freaking out. But the point is, yeah, the labor pains are going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. But there's an end result. The child's going to come into this world. Here Jesus is saying, all these things are just the beginning of labor pains. Yeah, the world is laboring right now, waiting to give birth to the kingdom age. It's a shame that, that, that the world has stole the term new age. Because when Jesus Christ comes back and he brings in his kingdom, it's going to be a brand new age. It's going to be a real new age. And it's going to be the utopian society that men have been dreaming of. And Jesus will sit on that throne and he will rule and he will reign righteously. That's when righteousness will cover the earth as water covers the sea. But did you know that, that to, the, to the Jewish people, the, their day begins at sunset. And beginning at sunset, it gets darker and darker and darker until right before dawn. It's darkest right before dawn. And that's what we're reading about here. The kingdom age is ushered in with the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's going to get darker and darker and darker right before the dawn. 
And there's going to be famines and earthquakes and pestilences and all these things will intensify and will culminate, culminate at its height during the tribulation period. And, and uh, this will give birth of the kingdom age or the new age, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful time that will be when Christ reigns on the earth. Now notice, look at verse 9. Many look at verse 9 as really, hey, we've actually moved into the tribulation. Whether that's true or not, he's still speaking of birth pain signs. And, and all. But there's some interesting parallels. Verse 9, uh, and the sixth sign, uh, number 6 is the martyrs. He says in verse 9, Then they shall deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, we can see the parallel. Revelation chapter 6, verse 7 through 9, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them to over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw into the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Understand, there are Christians, there are fellow believers that we have that are dying for their faith right now in our world. There are places you do not want to go as a Christian, as a believer. In fact, I found a list of the ten most dangerous places to be a Christian right now. Number ten was was India, was number ten. Iran is number nine. Yemen is, is eight. Eritrea is seven, often referred to as Africa's North Korea. Sudan is number six. Pakistan, which Rakas wants me to go to him with Pakistan, is number five. I'll pray for you. Uh, <laughs> Libya is number four. Somalia is number three. Afghanistan is number two. And the most dangerous place to be a Christian right now and for the last 18 years is North Korea. North Korea. Now you'd think that it'd be China or, or, or Indonesia or something like that. Those are horrible places as well. But these are the ten top ten list of places around. But there are places in Indonesia where they're putting believers to death. China, they're, they're burning down churches. They're putting believers to death, persecuting pastors, thrown in prison. And it's going gonna, gonna to continue and continue until the time of the tribulation where the Antichrist is going to just go for it and really persecute those who have turned to Jesus Christ and are following him. John says in Revelation 6, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Then sign number 7. False prophets, look at verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now I want to point out it says false prophets, not false teachers. Why not teachers? Well, because the church is gone. We're in heaven. We're not concerned with false teachers anymore. Whereas Israel, the Jewish people that left, they're concerned with the false prophets. Now, over the years, I, I've come into contact with some false prophets. And I have people come up to me and tell me, I am Moses and I got a word for you. I've got, I'm Elijah and, and my neighbor back in California, he thought he was Elijah. You know, the, the church, you know, we had a church of, of a couple thousand people and you get people coming in and, and I oversaw the usher ministry and I, and I had a guy come in and tell me, I'm Elijah the prophet. I said, hey, we're a non-profit organization. I'm sorry, you, you can't, we can't help you here. But they would come in and say, I'm a messenger from God, a prophet from God, I have this, this word for you, totally inconsistent with Scripture. God's word says that during the Great Tribulation, this kind of, you're going to have a rise of these false prophets saying they've heard from God. Finally, number eight, there's going to be worldwide chaos. Look at verse 10. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. 
Man, does that not describe the world we're living in today? We are seeing some of these things, and it's only going to get worse. Verse 11 and 12, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness. People aren't obeying laws anymore. They don't respect police officers anymore. I mean, 50 years ago, so much easier to be a police officer than it is today because we're living in a lawless society. But Jesus said all this would happen. Lawlessness would abound and, and the love of many would grow cold. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.2 that in the last days, men will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Which means they'll have no, no family love for each other. Those natural affections have become perverted to homosexual affections. Lawlessness leading to homosexuality and perverting the sanctity of marriage, all the while the media just, just applauding it. Now that doesn't mean we, we hate these people. We need to pray for these people. We love them. Christ died for them, but it's an unnatural behavior. It's against nature, and it's what God's Word says. I shared this last Wednesday evening, and I'm not a big Rick Warren fan, but I appreciate what he said. And this was his quote. He says, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And yet, we find in lowering these, these standards, the, the idea in our society that there's no right, there's no wrong, and everything is just relative, and it just leads to more and more lawlessness. And if it's not so bad now, I mean, it's just going to get vastly perverted and worse during the time of the tribulation. A very, very dark place. And when the church is taken out of here, the Bible says that the church is, is a salt. You know, salt is a preserving thing. When the salt is taken off this earth, man, it's going to corrupt quickly. I mean, you think the world is a bad place now, then you definitely don't want to be here when the church is taken out. Really, really dark, really corrupt. When Jesus goes on in verse 13, he says, But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, I need to, read, need to explain this because this verse causes a lot of confusion. Does this mean that as Christians we're going to go through the tribulation period and that we're going to have to hide in the rocks in the dens of the earth and we're going to have to store up food, we're going to have to be you know, preppers and go out in the middle of the desert nowhere and live and tough it out through the tribulation, otherwise we're not going to make it. Ume, no way, Jose, it's not going to happen. Again, why? Because I believe the rapture of the church will happen before the great tribulation. As a matter of fact, the rapture has to happen before the Antichrist will ever be revealed. And let me tell you this, I'm not looking to find out who the Antichrist is. I'm looking for Jesus Christ and His return. And then those who are alive on the earth after the rapture who turn to Jesus Christ, let me tell you, the majority of them will be the Jewish people. There's going to be this massive, massive Jewish evangelism taking place during the time of tribulation, during the time of Jacob's trouble. Revelation 7 says God will seal 144,000 of them out of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to be like Jewish great glories or Jewish Billy Grahams. I mean, they're going to be sharing their faith and many believers will come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last three and a half years. Jewish people will come to faith in Christ. But what this is saying in verse 13 is those Jews who make it through the tribulation, they're going to be saved physically and they will enter in physically into that kingdom age, into that last 1,000 years. There will be people on the earth 
not very many, but the second coming who survived somehow the tribulation, even though the population was almost completely wiped out, but they will be, when we get to Matthew 25, they will be the sheep who comes as Jesus says, Come ye blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the foundation of the world. They'll be saved. Those are the sheep nations and they'll enter into the kingdom of age. See, he's not talking about Christians persevering in order to be saved. Now, neither is he saying that if you backslide, if you blow it one time, you've lost your salvation. Oh no, I'm playing a video game, I shouldn't. I'm not going to be raptured. Oh, I can't. oh no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying those Jews that are living during the tribulation to persevere to the end will, will be saved to go into the kingdom age. So finally, verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, the end is not the rapture. Don't confuse that. The end is not the rapture. The end is the Jewish age. The end is the, the end of the great tribulations uh, just before the second coming. Now, there are those who say, well, Jesus can't come to rapture his church until the church gets the gospel out to the whole world. And that's what this verse is saying. Now, there are verses to support the idea that we need to get the gospel out. One being the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go in all the world and preach the gospel. That doesn't mean that Jesus can't come back right now for his church. Do you know that during the Great Tribulation, there's going to be angels that are commissioned to preach the gospel. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Why? Because God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It will be preached. Angels will be flying around going, repent, believe in God. Now this brings us to our final point as we close. Why? Why are we still here? Because God has things for us to do before leaving earth. And the highest priority of that is preaching the gospel. We've been commissioned. We've got a job to do. And we shouldn't wrestle every tribe, every nation, every tongue has heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, And do this knowing the time that now it's high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Again, there's nothing hindering the rapture from taking place right now. I do believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And my question to us this morning is, are we ready? Are you watching? Are you looking for His return? Let me close with this story. It's a story I heard about Joseph Stoll, who was the president of Moody Bible Church. And he visited this home for the mentally handicapped, uh, mentally handicapped children operated by a Christian friend of his. And he noticed when he got there that there was these little tiny handprints covering all the glass uh, windows there. And, and he remarked about that. So what, what, what's with all the, the smudge marks on, on, on the glass windows there? And this is what he said. His friend said, he said, Oh, those, the children here love Jesus and they're so eager for him to return that they lean against the windows and they look up into the sky. I love that. What an awesome thought. All these little handprints all over the windows in this home, all because these handicapped children believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. What a rebuke to our worldly hearts as we get involved in the things of the world and we forget that the Lord is coming soon. Listen, prophecy should cleanse us. And if you haven't repented, then you need to this morning. Jesus is coming back. You need to get right with Christ. Prophecy should comfort us. The Lord is, is going to come back. It will get worse, but man, be comforted. He's going to come and He's going to bring you home. And finally, number three, prophecy should compel us. Let's get the word out. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, that, Lord, when we cover your word, we come to places in your word that describe prophecy, things that are going to happen in the future. And Lord, you've given that for a reason for us, that it would affect our lives, that it would change our lives, change the way our attitudes are. Father, I pray, we pray together as a church, that you'd help us to be like those children, Lord, putting our handprints on the window, looking, believing that you could return at any moment. Father, we pray for our loved ones that don't know you. Lord, give us those opportunities to invite them here to church, to help them to hear the gospel message that they would be saved. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that's not saved, that's not surrendered their hearts and lives to you. Lord, touch their heart this morning. Let them know how much you love them and desire that they not stay in that place. Lord, as your word says, you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Lord, we know you sent your only begotten Son to die on that cross and rise again from the dead. That just by believing in Him, we can have eternal life, our sin forgiven. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, they would come to you this morning. Thank you for our time, Lord, together. Thank you for your, your great grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.